One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. A special talk episode to basically get you guys up to speed, I think, has been warranted for a while. So, since I'm taking a small hiatus from our regular programming while I plan the Easter Rising special, I thought that I'd surprise you with this little guy here. I hope you enjoy it. It's been a long time coming, and I really did have a good time doing it with Sean, since it's been absolutely ages since we've done a talk episode. It's a little bit wackier, uh... (laughs) that you may be used to, but uh, I promise it gets more serious as it goes on, so stick with it, and if you're not really in the mood for all that kind of fun friend stuff, then skip ahead about 15 minutes until you get into the real meat of the episode. And yeah, that's it really. Oh, uh, Sean would like you all to know, at one stage in this episode, I mentioned that, of course, I bring up the Bulgarian atrocities and the fact that uh, up to 30,000 people were killed. Sean O'Regan would like you to know that he is not laughing at the fact that 30,000 people are killed. He's laughing at the fact that that phrase I say there was actually a repeat of a phrase I had tried to say earlier and messed up royally. And if you want to know more about that, stick around for the outtakes at the end. But Sean would like you to know that he is not a mass murderer and he does not approve of such atrocities. He is merely laughing at something else and it sounds completely wrong because it's out of context. Okay, so with that disclaimer out of the way, and Sean made a little bit more comfortable with this episode going out, I hope you guys have a great time listening to it. Let me know through the usual channels, and thanks again to you, Sean, for joining me. Cheers, bud, and cheers to you guys. See you soon. Thanks. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Back on the podcast, and my guest, as always, is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. Ah, nice job. So, it's been a really long time. It's so long. So oh my long. gosh. It's so nice to be back on the podcast. Um, so nice to, to be able to fill your ear holes with my voice. So great. <laughs> uh, and it's really nice to catch up on my old history buddies. Really nice as well to uh, pretend that you've been listening to the podcast. I, I have to be honest, and I have been swamped with life, so I, I haven't had time to keep up to date with stuff that happened, you know, more than a century ago. Oh. Just, just, just 
Just living in the present, you know, living oh, in the see. moment. Yeah. The like, usual. Like those really smart people who say that there's no future in history. <laughs> you one of those? <laughs> no, no, just, just, I mean, if I had more time, I oh, could yeah. look at the past and learn from it. Instead, I just blunder on aimlessly into the future. Yeah, same as the rest of us, really. Mm. Okay, well, we can't do a time transplant, but what we can do is do this talk episode that will basically serve as a kind of summary for Britain Goes to War so far. Because even though it's been really fun and... I've really enjoyed doing it. I have gotten a few messages from people basically saying, Zach, I like the way this is going, but everything's happening. And there's so many names, there's so many events, there's so many great, serious issues that I really just can't keep up with it all. So I would really appreciate it if you just tell me where we're at right now. And I felt like sending him a message back and saying basically where we're at right now. But instead, I'm going to do this because it's better and it answers all their questions. So... What do you think, John? Well, I think it's great. It'll bring me up to speed, and maybe I'll be able to listen to the next episode and know where we are. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's good. So that sounds exactly like we're we're setting out to answer those questions that yeah. we got in that email. So pretty big ambitions right there, but I think we're uh, we're on to a winner. I'm really enjoying doing Britain Goes to War, and I've gotten good feedback about it. So. I don't feel as kind of worried about it as I did before that people would be like, oh, for crying out loud, he's doing the First World War again, because as you probably noticed from the last 24 episodes, I haven't even really touched the First World War yet, except in passing references, so yeah, I'm quite happy with the way it's going. Also, being able to look at Disraeli in detail has been really enjoyable, I must say. Really, really has. Of course, Shell would know this if he listened, but anyway, let's not hold that against him. Okay, <laughs> so I think that there's only really one direction we can go after, uh, and I'm not talking about the band here, but there's only really one direction we can go when we enter a podcast like this, and I think we all know which way that is. <laughs> well, it's the only one way. You gotta be fit! Be fit! Woo! Yeah. Really fit while people walk up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> That's being fit. That's being fit. You saw people running the other day. You saw someone cycling home. They're being fit. They're not being fit in the right way. Yeah. The we'll only... tell you the right way to be fit. You need to know this. So pay attention. <laughs> You're supposed to say B stands for... I thought you were going to No, why would I say B stands for? You always say B stands okay. for, and I have to answer and try to remember what B stands for. Oh, yeah, that's how we do this. Sorry, it's been so long. <laughs> Uh, right, so B stands for hey, just to mess you no. up. Now. <laughs> Actually, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Well, okay. no, everyone will get confused. They it's been so long. They'll be like, "Wait, didn't Sean used to answer what B stands for?" Like, wait, no. wasn't this when diplomacy fails? I'm really confused. Yeah, now. yeah, I can't tell if this is the same show. B stands. We could say both at the same oh, yeah, time. Yeah. Okay, so B, B stands, stands for. for... <laughs> Too weird. Uh, that was too weird because yeah. then you have to keep talking and I get to stop. So, yeah. okay. Uh, maybe if we both answer at the same if time. If we both answer after saying it. Yeah. So, B, B stands, stands for, for blog. WDF <laughs> podcast. WDF podcast. Control yourself. Oh, WDF podcast.blogspot.ie. The blog is the best place to go if you want to support the podcast monetarily because there is a donation button there. And I really have to give you guys a big hand because there is also there's a single donation button, but there's also a subscribe to donate button where you can give a certain amount every month. And I'm very proud to say that I'm making 90 euro a month now, purely on people's generosity from 
them deciding to give certain amounts every month. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Really awesome. And I've been getting crazy numbers of donations as well. Well, not like every day or anything, but whenever I do get a donation, it's a sizable amount. The last donation I got was 50 euro. So, wow. Yeah, madness. Awesome. Yeah, really, really good. So really people, appreciate it. People are seriously generous, and it is massively appreciated. So if you go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, there is actually a post there basically telling you what I want to do in my future in terms of Cambridge and all that stuff. So if you want to read that post, get an idea for who Zach is, that'd be that'd be great as well. But if you'd also like to give monetarily, of course, that would be massively appreciated. And E is for... Email! Yes. WDFpodcast at hotmail.com. There we go. That's it. That's the right one. That's the right one. That's the money. So- the main reason you might want to email me is if you have something you really want to say in a forum that isn't Facebook or anything like that, and you just want to send me a private hello kind of thing, so obviously you know reasons for why you'd want to send emails, but I'm just trying to advertise every part of BFID here. So if you'd yeah, like you, to email the podcast... If you really want to talk to Zach one-on-one, that's your best option. That is your best option. So WDFpodcast at hotmail.com. F is for... Uh, Facebook. Uh, if you want to go onto the Book of Face and find When Diplomacy Fails' Facebook page and I really like it. I really hope I didn't swear in a different language. No. That doesn't sound like it's. No, I don't think no, you did. No. Okay. I think fine. we're in the clear. It's okay. Yeah, okay, you're okay. So, Facebook, Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails. Also, check out the Agora Podcast Network Facebook page because When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which you may or may not be aware of considering I say it at the start of every single episode. Yeah. Okay, okay, I I is for... Yes, I is for iTunes. Where you can uh, uh, rate and... Uh, what is it that you can do on, uh, on iTunes? Show. No, wait, wait. You can rate the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast. It goes straight to your... Uh, it'll download straight away when it comes up. Uh, and you can review... There po- we go. And this is the most important thing. So if you want to make a review uh, and, and do it on, on your iTunes, whatever nationality you're on, uh, Zach will... Search through all the different nationalities of, of iTunes to, to view all of the pages and uh, see all of the reviews. Yeah, I will. Uh, really appreciates it when we get to, well, when he gets to number one on uh, on any of the given on all countries. Of them. On all of them. I mean, the Irish podcast one keeps keeps getting you up there. Yeah. Mm. It's doing well. Mm-hmm. It's doing very well. You do yeah, well in so. Australia as well. And, yeah. And the States. All those former convicts supporting me. Good job, guys. Representing... Yeah, so rate, review, subscribe, because it helps the algorithm on iTunes basically tell iTunes that When Diplomacy Fails is the place to be. So I really appreciate you guys logging in there, rating it, reviewing it, and of course subscribing so that it comes direct to you every week that it's released. So keep doing what you're doing there, because you're doing a great job. So, T is for... Uh, hmm. I wonder what it is. Could it be... Maybe it's for, like, a cup of tea? It could be. It could be a cup of tea. Oh, you know what you should do when you're having that cup of tea? You should tell the person you're having tea with about this podcast. I honestly honestly thought you forgot what tea stood for. No, 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 tea. (laughs) It's perfect. You just get some friends over, you make tea, you put out some biscuits, a little bit of a spread, and then you tell them... Before you give them any biscuits, be about to hand them a biscuit and then be like, by the way, When Diplomacy Fails podcast... And then they're like, what? And you're like, take a bite of this. And then, and then, and then what? <laughs> they, they're going to eat the biscuit and be like, I have to look at this podcast. Because it will, the biscuit will tell somebody. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> we're tell just having somebody, some fun. Yeah, tell somebody about when diplomacy fails. We really do. Like, uh, get a get a cup of tea or coffee. Um, uh, as I'm sure you don't all know, but we both now work in coffee shops. Yeah. So. Uh, so we we both often make coffee and tea for people. Mm-hmm, so if you mm-hmm. do want to tell people about stuff. I recommend doing it over a cup of coffee because people seem to do that and enjoy themselves. Yeah, weirdos. But yeah, you should do that <laughs> because really telling people is still one of the best ways to spread the word about this podcast. All the social media stuff aside, that does really, really help, obviously. But telling people really does help too. And in a way, telling people is more effective because the other person doesn't have to do anything. All they have to do is listen to what you're saying. So do it. Thank you very much for doing it. So yeah, that's beef it. We managed uh, to yeah, get Yeah, we through. managed to get to the end of it. Uh, I wonder how the edit's going to sound. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to, guys, if you guys want to hear the all the outtakes and the unedited version of it, uh, there'll be uh, a link to it in the show notes, and it'll also have some snippets at the end of this show. Will it? Uh, that normally, you know, after credits, that's normally... Oh, yeah, the mistakes at the end. Yeah, people yeah. don't know about them, but they should stick around. It's kind of yeah. like a Marvel movie, you it, stick it around like, the you end. Just, you're like, oh, that's the end of the... And now it's playing the outro music, and then you, like, hit stop and leave it. But actually, if you if you stick on for those extra, you know, two minutes, you'll hear all the times that we fouled up royally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it won't be as long as two minutes. Although, realistically, if you leave the podcast and there's still a few seconds left, you're kind of your own fault, isn't it? Because yeah. you can yeah. see how much time is left. Anyway, if you've done BeFit or all of it, or even thinking you're doing parts of it or all of it, thank you so much, because your support is what keeps us going. So thank you very much, and let's continue on with the show. So, Sean, Britain goes to war. Where are we? You don't know. I have no idea. It's, okay. it's the year is 1840. No. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> Sean just tried to read from my notes there. There boy. <laughs> We started in roughly the 1840s, and that was kind of where we started to set the scene. Originally, the idea was to start back, like, in 1897 and do 1914, but the more scripts I wrote, the more I realized that there was just too many stories, anecdotes, and people that I would have left behind if I started there, so I made the decision to start a bit, well, earlier, I guess, and kind of, in the process, make the whole series a little bit longer, really. I mean, I didn't intend to be in 1878 after 24 episodes, but that kind of gives you an idea of, well, not only how how big this project is, but kind of... How much was going on in the past? Yes, thank you. Like, there is so much stuff that no one really knows about, but, I mean, Disraeli, like, come on. Like, all those kinds of things that no one really talks about or is aware of, and yet... They had such an impact on British history and, by proxy, Irish history. I mean, even in that sense, the amount of times Irish history and Irish issues came along to muck up British politics. Like, in 1914, we'll be really looking at that because of the the formation of two armed camps, basically, on the island of Ireland. But even with the Home Rule crisis that will end up splitting the Liberal Party in the 1880s, like, it's a huge, huge deal. And so much of it isn't really known of or understood, but even just the way that Ireland and Britain coincide and their issues like affect the other. Really, really fascinating. So I'm looking forward to covering those big things. But even at the moment, we've got some pretty cool stuff. Since episode 10, we've been covering uh, Disraeli's Conservative government that was basically formed in 1874. If you can remember back to episode 10, uh, Disraeli's government was the first majority Conservative government. Uh, Well... I suppose since the 1840s, really. So that means that there, since 
30 years. Yes, since the 1840s when Sir Robert Peel had basically done that and then split his party over what was called the Corn Laws, which we won't really get into because it was a very long time ago and it's not really relevant anymore to us. But it basically involved changing the prices of corn. I know that when he did it, it split the Conservative Party. And because of that, you had people like Gladstone and Disraeli basically giving more, given more chances to prove themselves because the Conservative Party was kind of up in arms. And it also meant that Gladstone went to the Liberal Party instead of staying in the Conservatives. Because originally, even though Gladstone's known today as being a big Liberal Prime Minister and all that kind of thing, which he was he'd actually started out in the Conservatives. Hmm. So, if not for the Corn Laws and all that jazz, he might still have been one. And maybe there never would have been any Disraeli-Gladstone rivalry in the first place, because they would have been in the same party, which in itself would have been pretty interesting to see how those two possibly would have got on. But yeah, so up to episode 10, a lot did happen. But from episode 10, obviously a lot has happened as well, but we've Mm -hmm. taken the focus to be more... Much more in-depth, really. I mean, a lot of it had to do with the fact that so much was going on, but also because I knew a lot of the issues that were being raised were things that people would find more interesting, so I wanted to spend more time on them. So things like the fact that basically Disraeli's cabinet, even though it looked at the start like it was going to cooperate really, really well, in time, where are you making that face? <laughs> I'm just paying attention. Okay. It's your attention face. That's my attention face. Okay. In time, what basically happened was uh, the cabinet began to split over a number of issues, which was where, of course, Lord Darby comes from, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But I think... So who's Lord Darby? I said we'll talk about it later <laughs> on. Why do you always do that? <laughs> the The thing that strikes me most, and it would strike you most about it as well, Sean, yeah. if you listen to it... No, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> is that in, like, what is it, July 1875, revolts start to break out in the Balkans. You know the Balkans. They're that really fun place that everything bad yeah, happens yeah. in in the years before the First World War. That's, uh, that's it, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> that actually does summarise it in a very accurate nutshell. But for Disraeli, what this basically meant was a long series of headaches up until the end of his ministry, really. But they began in July 1875 with revolts in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then they expanded then to actually occur and break out in Bulgaria, which are the better known ones. They only really erupted in May of 1876. And throughout the course of 1876, the British turned their attention more towards the region, even though... The British during this time are known for being isolationist. Yeah, so what business do they have in there? What what sort of thing are they trying to protect? Well, well what, they, what is British interest in uh, the 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 uh, the bu- <laughs> the bu- the get there the 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 Bulgaria. No. Oh. But the whole, the whole area, <laughs> Balkans. Yeah. Balkans. Oh, I thought you were trying to say Bulgaria all that time. No, in the in the Balkans. <laughs> I kept trying to say Baltic, and I knew that was wrong. I should have said that anyway. No. <laughs> no, uh, but Balkans. So, the Brit- what was their interest in the Balkans? The British weren't really interested in the Balkans in, like, a geographical sense. What they were right. really interested in was the issues that are being raised there, in particular the fact that a lot of massacres that happened by the Ottomans when they were trying to put down the Bulgarian revolts in which they killed up to 30,000 men, women and children. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. Uh, So because of that, 
like that would have been a pretty big issue anyway and foreign governments were trying to find out more about it of course but once it was gotten wind of by the British public there became this kind of sense not only just to know more from what the papers were telling them but also they really wanted the government to do something about it and even then it wouldn't have been so bad they might have forgotten about it after a while but this was the point where William Gladstone came in and really made trouble for Benjamin Disraeli. Now, I, I wonder, like, what, what sort of British sense was that out of? It wasn't out of any sort of libertarianism, was it? Or, or, or any sort of uh, ideals of, of uh, republicanism or, or, or something, you know? I'm trying to figure out the British mindset here. Why, why do they, like, obviously the war crimes. They, they want to stop the war crimes. But... What, why uh, why did the British have such a sense of duty to them to the to the Bulgarians to to step in to want to go to war I think that's a very like it's a good question but it's very broad yeah to but, know the answer you really have to kind of look into the mind of the British people like it, it well, like was it out of honor like you like you talked about before or was it duty or well yeah it was guilt, honor it was know? honor in a sense that they to see immoral things happening made the british public upset and especially at this time when you had the kind of it was the victorian era and victorian britons were supposed to stand for very high moral principles and they were being told on a regular basis that their empire stood for these values of christian morality so to turn around and say yes these massacres are happening over here but we're not going to bother about that because it's not in our country I mean massacres happened all the time all over the world massacres happened all the time all over the world and the British people didn't know about it the reason why these issues really affected them so much was because they were made aware of it so what you're saying is media like newspapers that this was would have been one of the first times that media within Britain had such a sway over people. Is Would that be true? Yes, to an extent. The media was really starting to come into its own at this time. I mean, the first... It's, it's ties to government and, and yes. how it could slant a story oh, and, big and make time, trouble yeah. for the lights of von Raisley... Raisel... Von, von Raiselberg? What? Von jo- Raisel. Who are you Disraeli. Disraeli. Dang it. Wow, <laughs> you weren't paying attention at all. No, I did. I'm just tired. I couldn't say his name because I started with Otto von. Otto von Raisley. <laughs> <laughs> that right there. Wow. <laughs> the real impact that the media has on the prospect of war or the course of a war will be seen in the Boer, in the well, the Second Boer War at the end of the nineteenth uh, century, but. In in this case, the reason why such a big deal was made of the Bulgarian massacres was because of what Gladstone did in September of 1876, where he published this pamphlet that basically argued on moral grounds. It was called The Bulgarian Atrocities and the Question mm. of the East. And right. it basically argued that Britain should get involved, Britain should do something, Britain should support Russia, to even if, if it couldn't involve itself. Britain should support Russia to stop the Ottomans. Gladstone went about portraying the Ottomans as a barbaric uh, subhuman species of humanity yeah, or something that, like that. Uh, a, a very interesting slant, considering that the Ottomans were then used to, to prop up against 
Russia. Yes, and this and, is why... And I'm, I'm trying yeah. to figure out how that happened in such a short space of time. Well, this is a theme that I've encountered in the last few episodes, is that public opinion changed so much in the course of two years. What you had here in this sense, with the arguing of making the basically the British go to war for the sake of the massacred Bulgarians, this was what was called the Atrocitarian Movement. And this was kind of incepted by Gladstone based on moral principles. And it completely flew in the face, as you said, of the tradition that Britain, British politics had of basically supporting the Ottomans against Russia, which had even been seen 20 years earlier in the Crimean War. This was probably, I would think, the main reason why Disraeli didn't up and do something, because he saw to him things weren't written in moral strands, they were written in strategic strands. So he wasn't going to support the Russians in crushing the Ottomans, no matter how barbaric they were. What he wanted to do was stop the Ottomans declining any further than they already had and stand up to Russia as much as was possible. Because that wasn't popular to do at the time, he kind of had to counter what was coming. He had to counter the news that was coming out of the East, all these bad news about atrocities and the like. He had to counter that as best as he could. By, well, he gave a kind of impression that he was doing something, even though he wasn't. And when he couldn't make that effective to people, when he couldn't give the impression that he was doing something, he basically said that it was out of Britain's hands, and that Britain couldn't impact the governance of the Ottoman Empire any more than they could impact the governance of Russia. So when when Which he... It's interesting yes, that an ally would say that. Yes, it is. But he he was trying to do his best when he knew that there wasn't much he could do or wanted to do. He wanted the whole thing to blow over. Mm. And indeed, he actually thought that it was going to blow over. And when talk about the atrocities first came out, what he he referred to it as coffeehouse babble because he didn't, number one, he didn't think it was true. And number two, he didn't think it was really important. So he didn't really want to waste his time with moral principles because as far as he was concerned, British foreign policy was governed by strategic interests. Ah, but then he's he's... Uh, Disraeli's known for listening to to the public opinion. Yes, he is. That's true. So, would you say in this case he had to he had to pay attention once he saw that it had become a, a popular movement? Well, yeah, he did. But Disraeli was greatly helped by the fact that this all went on in 1876. Right, the mm. following year in in spring, the Russians declared war on Turkey. And by that stage, the kind of agitation for Britain to do something in the name of moral principles, the atrocitarian movement, if you like, Mm. that had kind of dissipated a little bit, enough to the extent that once the Russians declared war, Disraeli was able to make use of this and basically paint it as the Russians getting too big for their boots yet again. And we need to stop the Russians yet again, that kind of thing. He was Mm. able to bring the familiar argument back. And the reason why it was able to work was... British people were kind of not, I, I don't want to say losing interest because that doesn't give them enough credit as, as human beings that they just forgot about the massacres that happened in the East. But it's kind of like today, if you see something in the news and you see it a lot and then you don't hear about it for three or four months, you eventually forget about it. And then if something more attention grabbing happens, such as a war in somewhere else, then you're like, oh, that's interesting. And by then, of course, you've forgotten about the this, the first issue you thought of and mm. I think that's a lot what like simple issues simple reasons like that have a lot to do with why Disraeli was able to change public opinion but I think it's more than that as well Disraeli was very capable in tapping into the kind of public feeling at the time and at the time there was a growing distrust of Russia there was always sentiments there because it had been left ever since the Crimean War 
the British were told, no matter what age they were, really, that the main competitor to the British Empire was the Russian Empire, and that the Russian Empire had fought Britain in the Crimean War, and the Russians had lost, but that they'd probably be looking for some kind of revenge in the future, that Russia was a huge, massive empire, and that it was really, really powerful, and that it was really, really ambitious, and that it was very old-fashioned and absolutist, and that it was the enemy of Britain on ideological grounds, but that it was also expansionist and wanted the Dardanelles and all these kinds of things. But you don't often hear about Russian colonies in the same way you hear about British colonies. No, because they were two very different animals in terms of empire. Like, Russia was and still is the greatest like land. It's the greatest, the, the biggest country on Earth, really. Mm. I mean, when measured by pure land size... Now, the British had the biggest empire that the world has ever seen, but because it was so disconnected, it didn't seem as impressive. I mean, obviously, the British loved their empire and everything, mm. but you wouldn't look at your own empire with the same awestruck wonder as the British often looked at, without any real justification, they'd often discover, especially in the First World War, the reverence in which Russian power was held mm. was often really not right when you it think just about exaggerated. It. Oh, so exaggerated! But that goes back to the whole thing of you need an enemy to direct the resources of your country against, or else, mm. and to unify your people against, or else your whole governance and your whole empire won't be as effective. Mm. And it's a, that's a very interesting uh, concept. It's is uh, the need for evil in the world to maintain order. Yeah. So, well, certainly the need for an enemy. I mean, any time anything bad really happened that came from Russia, the British were able to make use of it for their own ends, either either when Disraeli was in charge, either for the sake of introducing a new defense bill, or for the sake of increasing armaments, or increasing expansion in a certain area, or like even Egypt, for example. British expansion into Egypt was done to protect the Suez Canal, the British wanted the Suez Canal to to protect the Mediterranean, and they wanted to protect that because protect India from the Russians. So it was all connected. There was nothing that the British did without really thinking of the Russians, except for when you got to massive African expansion or massive Canadian expansion or that kind of thing. You do have to remember Alaska, though. Russia did have... Alaska. Yes, but only till 1867, after which it sold it to the US. But yes, up to that point, there was a lot of... It, it looked like Russia was going in a lot of different directions. But I actually did... The reason why I know the date of that off the top of my head is not because I'm a genius. It's more because recently I did an episode on the Monroe Doctrine for 10 American Presidents, which you should really check out. And it was basically in. It was based in the early 1820s. That's why I was able to name Metternich off the top of my head earlier on. Mm, nice. Yeah, but I had to look at the European situation at that stage, and even at that stage in the early 1820s, Britain was really looking at Russia after the Napoleonic War as a kind of a Cold War enemy, in the sense that the Russians were now the strongest land power in the world. And they were the biggest empire. They were mysterious enough to be feared and to be presented uh, to the British public as this kind of inconquerable giant menace, in a sense. And that hadn't really changed by the 1870s. They had fought them in the Crimean War and they had won. So this, even though they had won, this didn't mean as it might mean to us today, that the Russians, oh, the Russians weren't as strong as they're put out to be. What it actually meant to the British was, we're the only ones that can stop Russia. Wow. So you yeah. had it presented that way, and mm -hmm. that was how 
Disraeli was able to flip it. And that was how he was able to present the Russian declaration of war on Turkey as an incident in which the British had to get involved in. So after the breakout of war between Russia and Turkey, what you had was an escalation of cabinet divisions within Disraeli's cabinet. And the divisions were basically anti-war or pro-war, the question of whether Britain would go to war to protect Turkey or not. And this anti-war camp was led by Lord Derby, who we encountered earlier. Yes, now we get to discuss the Derby. Yes, we do. And Derby has a lot of angles to him. Yeah, so let's... uh, Who is this guy? So Derby is probably... This is the 15th Earl of Derby which goes to show how far his lineage was. Wow. Darby's father was the leader of the Conservative Prime Minister and a really important figure in his own right. He was the Prime Minister of Britain for a very long time and basically he was the guy who Benjamin Disraeli took the premiership from once he retired. Wow. And because obviously of the position that Darby's father was in, the younger Darby, who we're more concerned with, was able to get a lot of political experience under his tutelage, basically. And, of course, his dad gave him the best postings and all that stuff. But from an early stage, Darby, our Darby, got more interested in foreign politics and that kind of thing. So he began to lean towards the posting of foreign minister. And, indeed, once Benjamin Disraeli takes the premiership for the first time in 1867, Darby takes the position of foreign secretary then. So... This whole relationship is set up quite early. Now, Disraeli and Darby get on very, very well and are actually very close friends because, as I said, Benjamin Disraeli takes over the reins from Darby's father. So that means he's around the older Darby a lot, which means he's in the younger Darby's house a lot. So the two of them talk a good bit and they interact quite a lot and they soon form a lasting friendship. So this is actually a a, a personal falling out, almost. Oh, it is, absolutely, which is why it's so interesting, and which is why I wish it was talked about more, because in in a sense, there's almost more drama in this than there is in the First World War uh, in 1914, in the whole cabinet divisions there. There's almost more drama in this one, but Mm. there isn't, because there isn't an actual war. But there almost was, as as we've been made aware of in the past few episodes. But there's a whole lot that goes on. But to really understand how it, it how significant this all was, we had to look at the relationship between Disraeli and between Lord Derby. And really, each man brings something different to the table. Disraeli has his experience, he has his wily cunning, he has the ambition and desire, really, to reach the top of the greasy pole, as he puts it, which he does do in 1867. Whereas Derby has the money, he has the family pedigree, and he has the valuable connections that Disraeli would need. Mm. Now, Disraeli had already gotten a lot of these from Darby's father, so he didn't need the connections so much. But you may remember in some of the earlier episodes, folks, that I mentioned Disraeli had a lot of debts that actually followed him to his grave, and he was constantly worried that he was going to get nabbed, as he put it, by these people who were looking for their money back, really. Wow. What Darby really did with his massive amounts of wealth was kind of... He didn't necessarily pay off all Disraeli's debts. That would be wrong to say, because had he done that, I'm sure that the friendship would never have disintegrated as it did. What he certainly did do was kind of give the debtors enough money or give Disraeli enough money to pay off those debtors to leave him alone for the moment. Now, once Disraeli becomes prime minister, he's less concerned because he's basically the man in charge of steering the ship of state. So no one's going to steal the prime minister and force him to pay in that case. case. I mean, he, he... 
you can you can hurt him until he becomes the prime minister. Like, yeah, uh, you you can't just make a prime minister disappear. No, exactly. So in in that sense, Disraeli was protected in a way, but he still very much valued the friendship that had been forged by Darby. And Darby was great in another sense as well, because up until the point that Disraeli forms the government in 1874, Darby was very good for moral support, but also for keeping Disraeli grounded and keeping him focused on the bigger issues that were at stake. Like, for example, in 1872, when uh, Disraeli's wife begins to take a turn for the worst and eventually dies... Of, uh, of a long bout of cancer and Disraeli is devastated of course but the people he really leans on are those peers in his own party who for a long time have kind of seen him as this exotic kind of foreigner because he wasn't a member of the aristocracy he wasn't really from the kind of traditional British stock that would produce great British statesmen even though he leads the Conservative Party at that stage he really does depend on men like Lord Derby to kind of Give him that one last push that he'll need to put on his finest last act, which is being Prime Minister from 1874 to 80. So for that, even, like, those little things, like, the kind of things you need your friends for, yeah. Darby was very important. Well, you know what? Hats off to Darby. He sounds like a great guy. Yeah. Um, and he was anti-war. He was anti-war, which is why he's so fascinating, because even though he spent all that time around Disraeli, he stayed stuck to his guns. And I think a lot of that has to come from the fact that he was his father's son. People have said that he wasn't as brilliant or as bright as his father. And in a sense, that could be declared to be true, because Darby, our younger Darby, never professed any real goals to be Prime Minister as his father had. He didn't want to do what William Pitt the Younger had done and follow his father into the Premiership. But what he did want to do was stick to his traditional conservative principles, and he wanted to run the party as best as he could from his position. And by right. that I mean he wanted to represent Britain abroad as best as he could. Right, of course. And yeah. his his way of doing that was really sticking to the conservative principles that he knew so well. Basically the things that defined the conservative party, like cautious responses to foreign situations not getting britain involved in anything all that significant sticking to your guns good governance the kinds of things that don't really engender change and don't require quick reactions but basically keep the country ticking by and make sure no great changes happen that was kind of the ethos of what the conservative party had always been about i mean not just in terms of foreign policy but also like domestic reforms as well most of the time when reforms are brought in, unless it's for strategic reasons, it's not the Conservatives that are bringing in those reforms because they are Conservative. Yeah, They keep stuff the way it is. Exactly. They are the party of the status quo. And for Darby to say, yes, let's keep this party going, let's keep the country at peace, I mean, that's basically what the Conservative Party had always been about. And I think the reason why this era is so important to us, even as listeners or as podcasters or as historians or whatever, is because of the changes it engenders in the Conservative Party, because it changes what it means to be conservative. Right, okay. And by that I mean, basically, uh, if you look at the differences between the Conservative Party, like before Disraeli took over and Mm. afterwards, it's almost a completely different animal. The one that would end up handing over the reins of government to the Liberal Party in 1905 looked leagues different from the one that Disraeli and Darby were at the helm of in 1874. I mean, over the course of the 1870s, everything changed because 
abroad, you had wars, you had challenges, you had issues that were being flared, you had the scramble for Africa, expansionism, loads of conferences, the opening up of the world, really, in a sense. And you also had all these ideas being thrown around, like imperialism, like escalations of race conflicts and all that kinds of thing. Wow, yeah. So all these things brought issues to the fore, like national honour, like prestige. They'd always been in the back of Mm. Britain's minds. They'd always been important issues, of course, and wars had been declared in their name. But they never, in the Conservative Party's principles, they'd never been declared the issues that governed what the Conservative Party did. What Disraeli basically did was he took advantage of the way the winds were blowing in the world in a sense that these issues were becoming more important to more and more people. And he basically said, this is what the Conservative Party stands for. The Conservative Party stands for national honour, for prestige, for representing the country with a stiff foreign policy abroad and for not backing down in any case Mm. because the Conservative Party is the country of the patriot citizen. And that's the way it is. He remoulded what it meant to be a supporter of the Conservative Party because... For so long, the Conservative Party was the party of the old landed gentry that didn't want any change. And now, suddenly, it was the party of the average citizen. He he had changed it, even in his speaking tours before he was elected Prime Minister in 1874. He had changed the base of the party by basically appealing to their patriotic sense of, like, inner Britishness. Mm. He basically said, these are the issues at stake, and the Conservative Party, with me at its head, we're the only ones that will possibly be able That's to stand up. Incredible. So, yeah. Like, what an outlandish thing to say. But I know. <laughs> it's incredible that, that he would put that across and then become elected with a majority government. That's yeah. That's just... I would just, you know, uh, that's, I have a lot of respect for that. that yeah. Is, um, he was a very good master of not even just propaganda, but, well, he liked speech to... Speechcraft. Yes, speechcraft, yes. He liked to think he understood the common man, but he often massively underestimated what was actually going on in the common man's mind. He liked to think that he could both pretend to be a member of the aristocracy and fulfill his ambitions there, but also romantically in a sense I suppose not forget where he came from and know what was really on the public's mind and he liked to try and balance these two things together but it it worked sometimes but more often than not he was left scratching his head and I think he was able to cover that mostly because well number one he was able to blame Lord Derby but also number two he had a cabinet of ministers who were very very good at damage control and the 1870s a lot of it for Disraeli's career in that case is a case of damage control. Wow. Especially when you come to the later 1870s that we haven't quite got to yet, but we will get to soon. Poor guy. You know, it it sounds like he really got started off with a lot of idealism. You know, he had this big dream and they were the men to do it. They were the ones to fulfill it. And then as soon as he goes... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Take a big step. His party just splits instead. I mean, that's... Well, that must yeah. be so frustrating it, and disappointing for him. I suppose. I mean, you could say, oh, boo-hoo, Disraeli, but in a way, it's very hard to do that, especially if you look at it from the perspective I pointed at in my episodes, where basically I sided with Darby a lot of the time, mainly because I don't think Britain should have gone to war in the, in the 1870s, and I'm glad that it didn't, because otherwise history would be very different now. Mm. And I don't... Well, I mean, you could debate whether it be for the better or not. That's a whole other, like library of issues right there but i think when you had the case of the anti-war or pro-war party in late 1870s once war had broken out with russia and the turks the fact that darby was able to get the better of disraeli repeatedly Mm. by basically saying what are you doing this is crazy we can't go to war and opposing Disraeli basically at every single step, to the point that Disraeli was beginning to despair by the end of 1877, and he was beginning to think to himself, how can I possibly find a way to, number one, get what I want, and number two, get Darby out of my hair? And Darby would later suspect that from 1875 onwards, Disraeli was beginning to plot against him alongside Lord Salisbury, who is another figure we'll come to later on. Wow. But the real thing, I think, once Disraeli realised, once the penny dropped, as they say, and Disraeli realised that he wasn't going to be able to get anything done with Darby there, I think that's the moment he started plotting against him. Because Disraeli had always prided himself on being a pragmatist, and he wasn't going to let relationships or friendships get in the way of what he wanted. Yeah. Just like he wasn't going to let moral principles get in the way of doing the kind of foreign policy that he wanted. That's, uh, yeah. That sounds like he he's a very interesting man. He know? is, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I have a, I admire him and now I despise him. It's beautiful. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I think that's, uh, you, you know you're dealing with a, a good historical character when yes. you can both love and hate them. Well, so. yeah. I mean, I found myself doing that as well, Sean. I, I, lots of times I found myself being like, damn, this Disraeli guy, like, what the hell was he thinking? And other times being like, wow, Disraeli, like, fair play to him kind of thing. I mean, at, at times I kind of felt sorry for Darby, especially when you get to the case of spring 1878 when in order to get rid of Darby from the Conservative Party a kind of campaign of well smear campaign really against Mm. Darby's career and what he stands for is basically undertaken by well in my opinion elements of the press that were instructed to do so from Disraeli or certainly elements of the press that weren't stopped from doing what they do by Disraeli I mean Disraeli did not stand in for his friend and I don't think by this point Darby really expected him to I think Darby was really just trying to do his best in the circumstances, and he knew that he couldn't last forever in his position. Betrayal and and friendship, you know, uh, not that you know. Obviously, international affairs are are a little bit more important than a than a personal relationship. But it yeah. does, you know, it it strikes me as a very hard position to be in 
when your when your best friend isn't going with you is is going actively against you. Oh, absolutely. And the problem for Darby as well was that Disraeli was just so good at doing that. He was so good at communicating his position. And I think a lot of it as well, a lot of times Darby, he had the support of his party. He had the support of a lot of ministers behind him. And had he wanted to go for the premiership and challenge Disraeli's position as the head of that party, he could have done it Mm. and lots of people would have supported him. But the problem was he lacked the kind of ambition or killer instinct in politics to really remove his friend from his position and seize the leadership of the Conservative Party. He didn't want to do that. And because of that, there was a kind of impasse for a while. And I think that really explains more than anything else why you see Lord Salisbury siding with Disraeli after siding with the anti-war party for so long is because when Darby came back from his really unfortunate illness in late January 1878 that basically sidelined him on a really critical part. After Darby comes back from that, he discovers that Salisbury is in the pro-war camp now. And I think the main reason for that was that Salisbury realised, well, as much as members of the party don't want to go to war and they will side with Darby, because Darby isn't willing to land the killer blow, we're kind of just going to be in this impasse forever. So rather than being in this impasse forever, I'll side with Disraeli. And in a way, because Salisbury decided to do that, a lot of the other elements of the party went with Salisbury because Salisbury for so long had been seen as the kind of middleman in between Disraeli and Darby. He'd been seen as the conservative principles kind of guy. Like, he had wanted to provide a foil to Russia and he'd wanted to stop Russia expanding, but he didn't want to prop up the Ottoman Empire because as far as he was concerned, the Ottoman Empire was going to collapse. So you had those kind of thoughts rolling around in Salisbury's head. But his conclusion to side with Disraeli, a lot of it comes from pragmatism and opportunism, but also this kind of realisation that in order to advance something, he was going to have to side with one man or the other. And Darby wasn't personally strong enough in Salisbury's mind to get the ball rolling, so he was going to side with Disraeli instead. Wow, okay. And that's really interesting that that it would be... Darby's strength and also his weakness uh, that that he had a relationship with Disraeli. You know, obviously getting the foreign minister position was partially down to his own background, but also sure. the party head was so close to him. Yeah, uh, and then and then to have all of that split, you know, uh, but then not be able to use that momentum that that lined up behind him to yeah. to to make a takeover and then really change British policy. Oh yeah. You know, it just, uh, it, it does show that, that, that he valued his relationship. I think it does. And I'm, to be honest, I find it hard to judge whether or not Darby didn't go for the premiership because he still had a soft spot for Disraeli or because he just didn't want the premiership. I think it was a mixture of the two, but I certainly think that if one of those ingredients hadn't been there, then he wouldn't have done it. I mean, had had Disraeli not been the Prime Minister and had it been someone else random who Darby had no connection to, I think even if he hadn't had the ambition to be Prime Minister, he would have done it for the good of the country. Yeah, exactly. But because Disraeli was there and Disraeli was his former friend, he didn't want to do it. Yeah, and, and that, that uh, you know, it's his strength and his weakness. Absolutely, it is. But when you see that, because he wasn't really willing to land the killer blow. What ends up happening is this really cruel change of British society basically turned completely against him. 
I mean, you had in February, you had this weird kind of situation where Disraeli wanted war so much that he almost fabricated a certain level of circumstances so that it made Darby feel like he had to resign. And when he does resign, there's such a backlash against like his resignation. Yeah, because wow. they don't want to lose a figure like Darby because he's too important. And then once Disraeli realizes, number one, that Darby was way too important to figure to just throw under the bus because the public and the Conservative Party clubs and all those kind of things, they still miss him and they value him and all that kind of thing. This just shows the real value of Darby's family pedigree, even the name value alone. He realizes that, but he also realizes, number two, that the the figures that he tried to kind of provide to prove that Britain had to go to war or even the infamous one is to send the British fleet up the Straits up the Dardanelles that was the whole thing that the policy of sending the fleet up the Dardanelles that was the policy that Darby opposed so often and it was the real solution that Disraeli tried to provide over and over again because to Disraeli sending the fleet up the Dardanelles was the best way to show the Russians that we're serious and all that kind of thing. But to Darby sending the fleet of the Dardanelles will just annoy the Russians who are at war with the Turks and who probably won't make it to Constantinople because their army isn't strong enough. Right. But it'll see they'll the the Russians will see it as an escalation of the situation and it won't really practically help the Turks either. And also, if the Turks say you're not allowed to come up the, the Dardanelles because that's our waters, oh my goodness, then we'll be weaken your, your yeah. relationship with, with the Ottomans. And, and we'll be breaking international law as mm. well if we do that. So when Disraeli realises these two things, that he doesn't have the either the support of the party to get rid of Darby or the actual uh, basis for making any kind of dramatic act against the Russians... He starts to backpedal a little bit. And this is like... This is probably Darby's greatest victory against Disraeli. But in a sense, it also in in guarantees that Disraeli wins the war. Because after this, Disraeli doesn't move against Darby again until he's absolutely sure that he's going to win. And he basically loses this battle very, very begrudgingly. And kind of ratchets up the tension from here on. He basically decides that he's going to play dirty from here on in. And, and, and he's going to tarnish Darby and take him out. Yeah. By by uh, uh, personality assassination. Yes, absolutely. Character, personality, smear campaign, all, if you, anything, anything he could possibly do. The things that Darby was accused of over the next few months until he did resign in late March... The things he was accused of from him being an alcoholic, being a weak-willed man who couldn't see the fact that his his wife was having an affair with the Russian ambassador. Wow. I mean, all these oh kinds of things. Goodness. The whole link with the Russian ambassador is very interesting because Peter Shuvalov was the Russian ambassador to Britain. And we've heard a lot about Shuvalov, but the link that... the Almost the friendship that Shuvalov and Darby had really went a long way towards making sure war did not happen between Britain and Russia because they had it's almost like having that emergency hotline there that the United States and the USSR had during the Cold War after the Cuban Missile Crisis mm, yeah. you had this instant way you could get in contact with the other country to make sure that you didn't mean that actually or they didn't really mean it in that way you know or that, is that this a lie thing. did we just get fed yeah, false information exactly yeah so it was a really important thing to have Shuvalov there which is ironic because even though we know and we see it as a really important diplomatic practice to have a good working relationship with an ambassador from another country that you're trying to get on with 
it was painted in the worst possible light on very many occasions. Yeah. Particularly because Darby was at this stage the object of not just the media's scorn, but also the public scorn because Britain was being portrayed in other countries as well as not really doing very much in the Russo-Turkish War. So what you're saying is uh, Britain at this point was very much the United States of America <laughs> in, in, in that era. Like, yes. When when America stands by idly now, we say, what is America doing? Yeah. And much of the same way then Britain was, yeah. why isn't Britain doing anything? Well, that's interesting that you mentioned the comparison with the United States because there's a double thing with that. I mean, in a sense that there had been a Cold War between Britain and Russia already and would this this cold war would continue for the rest of the century and then of course there'd be one between uh russia and the united states but also that idea that if something is happening in the world britain has to get involved that's a really really important thing for disraeli because it shows that british influence is everywhere and british reputation is everywhere that like something couldn't happen in darkest africa without britain either knowing about it acting on it, or at least being seen to have some kind of finger in that pie. To Disraeli, this was hugely important. But to Darby, that kind of smacked of the kind of disingenuous concern for things that didn't really matter to Britain. And as a conservative statesman, he was thinking to himself, well, these are the kind of things that can lead to danger down the line, so why would we get involved in all these kinds of things? Yeah, and and it was out of... uh... It was out of this perception that Disraeli, Disraeli thought that, that, that Britain had to be the answer to everything. That Britain yes. had to answer to, to all of these situations. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't feasible, number one, because it would be way too expensive for Britain to get involved in everything that ever happened. But number two, it, it wasn't at all to the Conservative ethos. It, it had nothing to do with the way the Conservative Party had acted for the last two or three hundred years. Nothing. There was nothing conservative about what Disraeli wanted to do, which was interact with everyone everywhere. Yeah, and get in, involved in the middle of, of quite an isolationist era. Like. Yes, in this, in a sense that, in the sense that Britain didn't have an alliance with any European country, therefore it couldn't rely on any European country to do its bidding, essentially, and soak up some of the abuse that it would get in any possible war that would result. You're absolutely right. It was very risky, and it was. It kind of guaranteed that if something did happen, Britain would have to bear the brunt of it and would have to turn its resources against whatever negative effects. What Darby argued for was to, like, reduce any possibility of there being any negative effects. Britain should just not get involved in these kind of pointless ventures. That seems like it was the clash of two different minds. Yes. And it really, I I think that's, I might actually go sit down and listen to the whole thing. Oh, good. That does sound like such a a dramatic tale to to hear. Well, that's what really, it struck me is that there was an absolute clash between Darby and Disraeli and it, it could have ripped the Conservative Party apart and it could have really changed history. And the only reason it didn't is because Darby didn't want the premiership and didn't want to uproot Disraeli. Had he wanted to, we could be talking and living in a very different version of history. So that's an example of how one individual really can change the way the entire world plays out. Yeah, and I, I suppose that must be what the the current you know ministers working in all of these larger countries must be thinking, is mm. that in in the decisions we make today will will later down the line be read by by historians and they'll be able to analyze and dissect everything and, absolutely yeah and uh you know it's it's crazy to think that that politics 
hundreds of years ago would be so similar to how politics are today. Well, yeah, I mean, even in a sense that personal relationships are so important, they still are, despite how how kind of how much our world has been opened up and how globalized everything is. I even saw something today about the French government wanting to call on the Spanish ambassador for some incident that had happened where a, a truck full of wine had crashed. I don't know. It was something. But even the, even the practice of calling on an ambassador from another country, those things still happen. Mm. So it's massively important to understand, especially in the story that we're covering here, it's massively important to understand how Britain got to the point that it got to in 1914. And also, even for the sake of comparison... I mean, I'll mention and allude to this a lot more in the future because I think it is an important point. In our story here, war didn't happen almost solely because of Lord Darby. In 1914, there was no character like Lord Darby. There was no character, certainly in the foreign office. There was no one to say, what are we doing? This isn't the way Britain normally acts. Like, let alone the fact that it wasn't a conservative thing to do. It wasn't a British thing to do to get involved in all these foreign wars and everything else because... Britain didn't do that kind of thing and never had and never was meant to because it's an island and how can it interfere with all these things that are happening on the continent that's exactly right (laughs) Um, so it must have been a severe policy change coming into the next century yes when when isolationism started to end and alliances and sides became important absolutely yeah and you kind of just defined there in a nutshell Sean what we're going to come across in the next few episodes well a few hundred episodes (laughs) judging by the progress I've made so far at this pace yeah (laughs) but like that's that's the thing you really see the Britain that enters the war in 1914 isn't the Britain that had ever been in the past If you look at the history of Britain up to this point, people argue against war for the sake that it's not the British thing to do. I mean, Britain will go to war for colonial reasons. It'll war against the Zulus, the Boers, all the Chinese, that kind of thing, because those are small wars for colonial reasons in the reasons of imperialism. But a great war or a world war, the likes of which had been launched against Napoleon, for example, you can't justify those kinds of things in 1914 because they're not the way Britain acts. That's not the way Britain has ever been. The Mm. only reason it happens is because by that point, there has been a change in how Britain is governed and how British politicians and statesmen see themselves by that time. And the only reason that change comes about, in my opinion, is because of the events of the 1870s here with men like Disraeli and Salisbury who change the way uh, Britain is governed and who change what it means to be British. The perception of what it is to be British and what it means on an international level to be called upon so we can always rely like oh the British should have an answer to this we can rely on the British to Mm. do this they expected from that point on a response from the British in a sense it's Disraeli's victory because Disraeli wanted that reputation to be there he wanted it to be seen that Britain was involved and Britain was really important to the extent that Everything so called on her. Actually, that is very interesting. That's actually in the same realm as prestige. Yes, it and, is. And prestige is hugely important. Yeah, so important. You know, uh, colonies were seen as a huge prestige. Navy was seen as huge prestige. Of course, Britain would want to have her finger in every pie. Because yeah. it was prestigious. Yeah. But we want to do this, but what would Britain think? Mm. Is something something that if if in any other... Uh, parliament, if any other parliament has to consider what Britain will say about our decision, then, mm-hmm. you know, you you are the ultimate power. Yeah. You are this behemoth that, that gets, 
you know, the attention of other states. Yeah, and and you're dead right there, but what I really wanted to capture, I did four episodes on basically the parliamentary debates on in January of 1878, and the reason why I did that, I did that number one to kind of take our focus off the Disraeli-Darby friendship kind of rivalry, because while I knew it was important, I wanted to get a wider sense of the British context and kind of transmit it to the listeners. But also... Even the points that Disraeli was making to Darby and that Darby was making in response, Disraeli was saying, as you were saying, that it's important for Britain to be seen to be acting across the world because that makes it look more prestigious and that kind of thing. Whereas Darby was saying, okay, that's true and prestige is really important, but look at the way every other country is reacting to Britain and has been reacting to Britain for the past 100 years or so. No one has ever questioned Britain's prestige. No one has ever said Britain hasn't been seen to act. And no one does anything without thinking to themselves, hmm, Britain won't like this. No one has ever acted directly against our influence. And to this, Disraeli would normally point to Russia. But to this, Darby would respond that, yes, while our prestige is at its height now, there has always been a power at some stage in Britain's history that has strove to challenge Britain's prestige to rival because you need that rival and even if you don't think that you need that rival a rival will always come to challenge you no matter how strong and powerful you are and no matter how prestigious Britain ever got there would always be another country there to challenge them because that's how world politics worked this is what Kaiser Wilhelm would have grown up in yes this is the the vision that he would have had for his Germany would have been to enter into the world stage and start pushing for for, for prestige in in a similar manner to Britain. Absolutely, and, yeah. And um, it it is ve- it's very interesting that concept of prestige and stuff. Mm. You know, um, I I don't think we have it in the same way now. We definitely have things on moral grounds. Like there's definitely like uh, people pushing on. We can't allow this to continue. Yeah. We should step in and end this now if mm. we have the capability of doing so. Yeah. And then people rally against that saying, but we've done it so many times before and all we've done is cause more harm. Sure. So, you know, we've really set the stage for the current events by our misdemeanor in previous events. Yeah. So I, I you know, it's losing the run of where I'm going with this, but it, <laughs> it just seems like uh, history does what history does and it, it it repeats itself. It does repeat itself. It really does. Even down to the very fact that you had a crisis in the cabinet in the 1870s and in 1914, and it was over the question of war. If you had suggested to Disraeli in 1878 or 1877 that it was Germany who Britain was going to go to war with in 1914, I mean, obviously, this is a ridiculous scenario. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, of course. All that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. But he would have questioned that very idea purely because... Russia was there like why would you why would you attack Germany who would be a foil to Russia and that's what people even mm. said in 1914 was the argument that why would you attack Germany because if Germany is destroyed Russia will roll over everything till it gets to the Atlantic that fear is something that is it had been ingrained in the early 1800s it had been reinforced in the Crimean War and I think it had really been cemented by now Because at this stage, you had a policy that would only escalate from here on of the idea that Russia's power was too insurmountable to ignore. So Russia had to be a major factor in British foreign policy, but also the idea that wherever we go from here, we'll have to invest in our defense. We'll have to invest in our empire building. 
and direct those things against Russia. Especially the thing to consider is the fact that Disraeli's protege, in a sense, uh, Lord Salisbury, is the man who takes over the helm of the mm-hmm. Conservative Party. And from the 1880s, really, ever since the Liberal Party splits, the Conservative Party is the party from from about 1886 to 1905 in that space of 19 years now I know we haven't gotten there yet but we will get there soon-ish from that space of 19 years the Liberal Party holds power for three of those years so the Conservative Party has 16 years on and off of being in power in which it is able to shape basically what it means to be British even more to the extent that it does now Mm. and it's, it's really like the impact that governments have on societies in general obviously is a separate study in for itself this is a roundabout way of me saying that you just cannot look at 1914 unless you look at the years that have come before Mm. and what this special has really shown me so far is how studies of the first world war need to change because even the ones that start in 1900 they don't take into account why britain acts the way it does and they don't take into account the issues that were changed and shaped beforehand. Mm, mm. I mean, you could say Britain went to war, so what? But, like, for Britain to act that way in 1914, like, look at the 1870s, for crying out loud. Mm. Uh, I I remember what I was speaking about earlier when I was making the point of, of how we, in modern times, do things out of a moral sense of duty. It was uh, it was in comparison to in those days it was out of a, a sense of prestige or a yes. sense of honor yeah uh, and how we don't think along those principles anymore or if we do it's it's not as obvious like mm. we, we wouldn't go to war to make Ireland great again yeah you know um, but uh, it maybe maybe uh, it swings and roundabouts and we're we'll we'll lean we'll lean back towards that well maybe who knows I mean who's to say I mean. The Dutch voted on a, a referendum today to uh, they basically opposed a deal that had been proposed by the EU head honchos, and that's being seen now as a sign to the British that the that the referendum on EU membership there is going to collapse, or at least that they're not really as certain as they were that Britain's going to stay in the EU. So. Who knows what could happen in the future? I yeah, mean, yeah. That's why you're a historian. That's it's why I'm a historian. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a futurist. I get to look back, and I don't really have to worry too much about the future, except the future of my own life. Yeah, thankfully. I think that's the only future you got to care. And for. that's enough. Thank, yeah. believe me. Yeah, believe me, that's enough. Um, yeah. So I, I would like to talk a little bit more just about Disraeli, even once Darby is removed and he goes to the the Congress of Berlin right and the Congress of Berlin happened from the 13th of June to the 13th of July 1878 1878 is the year that we're still at now and we're we're putting it on hold for a few weeks as I cover the uh, 1916 rising and do that in a special surprise surprise but I kind of already mentioned it before but where we are now is 1878 that's kind of where I've left us off so you don't need to think about any years after that just yet but yeah, so the Congress of Berlin. Have you ever heard of the Congress of Berlin? I have never heard of the Congress oh, of Berlin. Okay. It's really unfortunate because I probably would have if I had listened to your podcast. Ah, well, podcasts. I know. Um, I, I actually wasn't doing that on purpose to dig at you, I promise. Yeah, no, it's, it's okay. <laughs> you know. the, um, uh, the Congress of Berlin basically was when all the representatives of Europe met to try and roll back what the Russians had achieved in their peace treaty with the Ottomans. The Peace of San Stefano 
was basically the treaty that the Russians had drawn up and tried to force the Ottomans to accept. And ever since that treaty had been kind of conceptualized in early March of 1878, so this is the March before the summer that the Congress of Berlin happens. So all these things happen in a relatively short space of time, mm. which is why I within, had to make... Within six months. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, which is why I had to make so many episodes on it all. Once once the, uh, the treaty is kind of conceptualized, it's basically seen as not acceptable at all to not only just British opinion, but also, and this is a less remembered fact, the terms of the treaty that the Russians tried to create were very unacceptable to Russia's own members in the Three Emperors League of Germany and Austria. In particular, Bismarck was starting to realise why it was important to oppose Russia in this sense before he just wanted the whole thing to blow over, or he'd varied from that, from wanting it to blow over, Mm. to... Uh, just wanting to partition the Ottoman Empire and be done with it and hand the parts of the Balkans to Austria and Russia and hand Egypt to Britain and hand like parts of the Middle East to France and all this kind of thing just to kind of make everyone happy and to reduce the possibility for conflict. Right. But what uh, Bismarck was seeing now was that the Turks could be used as a foil against the Russians but also that it was important to be seen to be involved in these kinds of things also for the purpose of prestige but as well as that he was seeing that it was important to Austria as well and because he was trying to cozy up to Austria and he would sign the dual alliance with Austria in 1879 so the year after this so this was all part of his policy to tie himself closer to Austria and Russia as well but he was focusing Austria more at this stage Mm. because he was trying to make Austria happy he knew that he had to kind of solve this situation so that's what Bismarck's angle on it was And Britain's angle really was basically to try and contain everything that had happened. So this is what Disraeli and Salisbury went to Berlin to really achieve. Now, if uh, Disraeli and Salisbury had their way three or four years ago, Mm -hmm. this would be a very different meeting. Yes, it would have. I mean, we would be talking about the the war that they might have been trying mm -hmm. to settle between the world at this stage. Yeah. But also, I find it interesting, and I mentioned this as well in the episode, that as much as Darby had tried to hold on to peace and he suggested a conference and all that kind of thing and he was thrown over the bus by the likes of Disraeli and Salisbury who wanted a war, now Disraeli and Salisbury were going to a conference that was really only made possible because, like you said, the war hadn't happened because Darby wow. had been there. Well, so as much as they'd said they Darby got the his war, little win at the end. He did. <laughs> he, got, he got the last laugh. Yeah. But I, I suggested this, that it wasn't intentional, obviously. I mean, it wasn't like he was dead yeah, and, and haunting he, them from the grave. No, but, he didn't call the meeting, but... He 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 made it possible. He certainly set the foundations, even mm. so far as Shuvalov, who I mentioned earlier to you, mm. Sean. Yep. Shuvalov was one of the main Russian negotiators. The, the ambassador. Yeah, he was he was the ambassador to to Britain, who Darby had a good relationship with. But he was one of the main negotiators for Russia in the Congress of Berlin, mm. alongside the Russian Chancellor Gorchakov. And because of the relationship that Darby and Shuvalov had had. If Darby had gone to this Congress, Darby might have been able to get better results oh, for Britain. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. But what is interesting is that I'm sure that there must have been a bit of awkwardness and tension between Shuvalov and Disraeli, considering... Mm, the smear campaign oh, yeah, that, well, that was run against him and, and how yeah. he really he destroyed Darby. And, yeah. And... and um, because it would have been a mutual friend that they 
but they'd both they'd both seen go down. Yeah, and uh, Shuvalov wouldn't have been happy that it had gone yeah, down, and, and and probably would have blamed Disraeli. For I'm it. sure he would have, and Disraeli would have seen it as just business. I mean, I talked about when Disraeli and Bismarck had their famous dinners together and all that kinds of thing. I joked that they they bonded over the people that they had had to throw under the bus to get there. I mean, yeah. European politics was a a place of turmoil, and you had to be pretty vicious to get ahead I mean skill was important and all that kind of thing and you could rely on your friends but certainly in the atmosphere of politics that Bismarck was engaged in where he had to be constantly wary that anyone could come up from behind and basically unseat him from his position as Chancellor and basically Mm. due to him through the media blackout and all that kind of thing what had been done to Derby Disraeli had to be very careful just like Bismarck had been so in a sense, I can kind of understand. I can understand uh, Shuvalov if if he was in a, a little bit uh, spiteful. Yeah, yeah, spiteful. I mean, I didn't really come across any examples when he was mainly because it was Gorchakov who was doing most of the negotiating, and Shuvalov was kind of really there as his second, just like Salisbury was there as Disraeli's second. Right. Um, so because of that, we probably don't hear as much about the kind of awkwardness. Was, was as we uh, could have. Salisbury appointed foreign minister then? Yes, Salisbury took over. Uh, Salisbury taking over from Derby is kind of a, a common theme of this stage. Salisbury took over the foreign ministry that Derby had left vacant after Derby had been forced out, and Salisbury would also become the prime minister and the leader of the Conservative <laughs> no way. Party. Oh yeah, wow. Salisbury would basically take over the helm from Disraeli. And now, if Salisbury hadn't gotten to that position, I mean, he might have gotten to that position by himself anyway. But certainly, I would see it as no coincidence that he ended up siding with uh, Disraeli rather than Derby in early 1878 mm. because he could see, well, he could see which way the winds were blowing, but also he thought to himself, I'm sure there was a bit of self-interest there. I mean, you don't just suddenly change like that from being pro-war to an- like from being anti-war to pro-war. You don't just suddenly change like that when this much is at stake. Yeah. We, f- yeah. I think we forget the element of professional interest a bit too much when we presented in these broad kind of strokes. I mean, at the end of the day, these were human beings and they did want to advance their careers. Mm. And Salisbury Mm. certainly did advance his career. No doubt about that. Yeah, so in the aftermath of the Congress of Berlin, where Disraeli does very, very well and is subjected to that famous quote by Bismarck of that old Jew, he's the man, which I think really speaks for itself. We could... A tri- we could really write a triumphant rhetoric about how well Disraeli had done up to this point and in a sense I kind of did that in the episode that I had done because I wanted to turn people's attention back to the fact that Disraeli was a pretty remarkable man mm. even considering all the things he'd done to Darby I didn't want the focus to just be on how bad he was because of Darby because that's not really fair to Disraeli as bad as the things he did to Darby were it's not really right to just focus all on them. I mean, mm. Disraeli was a really important British Prime Minister and he was leading Britain at a very important time, to say the least. So for Britain's for Britain's Prime Minister in Disraeli to be recommended as he was by Europe's leading statesman in Bismarck, I mean, it really speaks volumes about how far Disraeli had come. It, it would make sense that you would 
become interested in a man recommended by Desmond. <laughs> like, well, you've got if me you're going to take your recommendations from someone, it may as well be Otto. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're making a CV and your uh, references have Otto von Bismarck at, as one of them, I mean, as far as I'm considered, you're you're hired, really. I mean, you can't get much better than that. But yeah, I I didn't just warm to him because of that. I warmed to him because I was trying to. To change how I was viewing Disraeli. I was doing my best to look past the personal stuff he'd done. And try and see him for a man based on his merits. And in a sense I I did that. But I probably... It made it easier as you said. Because of Bismarck's recommendation. Mm, mm. But yes. So where the story is now. Well we've kind of brought it up to speed. I've, I hope we've brought you guys up to speed as much yeah, as we well, can. Yeah well you've definitely brought me up to speed. I should be able to... Uh, <laughs> pick up the episodes now and, yeah. and just know where where I am and uh, know some of the names if even uh, and and know some of the background so sure I mean if even you'd like to start from episode 10 because that's when Disraeli's government comes to power you can start right. from there right that's probably where it really all heats up the episodes before then I'm really just setting the scene and explaining how okay. we get to that point so you could like set those up as prequel episodes and then episode 10 is where the real action kicks off. Yeah, if you want to think about it that way. So, yeah, where we're at at the moment is kind of... Uh, Episode 24. 24, yeah. Uh, and we're just coming out of Berlin, yeah? We're just coming out of Berlin. We're in about late summer. The Europe. repercussions of, of Berlin are Yeah, Europe and Britain are kind of digesting the results of mm. the Congress of Berlin. Yeah, well, there you go. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, special look at... Britain Goes to War, and I hope this is the first of many talk episodes, because these kinds of uh, Where Are We Now episodes, I think, are really, uh, really important. Yeah, and it's it's been a, it's been a long while. It I, has. I've, I've missed it, uh, and it's really good to catch up with what you're doing without having to go through the, what is it, 12 <laughs> hours? Yeah. 12 hours of content that you've put out? Yes. Um... Which, not that I don't want to listen to it, I just don't have 12 hours handy to, to sit say, down and listen yeah, to it Yeah, I'd all. say it's more like 14 hours. More like 14 hours. I mean, it it's not, you say it like that, it doesn't sound so bad, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, just fitting that in alongside the rest of the stuff that I do, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard, but I'll see, I'll see now. I've mm. got some free time, I should be able to get it done. Oh, good for you, I'm flattered. Yeah. Well, well, it's worth it. Like, yeah. <laughs> listen, you guys, this is some top-notch stuff. Yeah. Uh, this guy uh, can very shortly be a doctor of history. So. Yeah, I know. Well, here's hoping now. Here's hoping that the funding comes through and all this stuff works out. I'll be very uh, happily and humbly yours, Dr. Zachary Jonathan Twomley. So, on that note, we are going to get out of here and each have a beer because I think we deserve it. Yeah, I think this. we're going to get a nice cold one and, uh, and just... Sit back and laugh at ourselves. Yeah. Re-listen to the podcast, maybe. Because <laughs> it's always fun when we edit it as if, well. If we're feeling brave. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... My name is Zach. And my name is Sean. And you've been listening... To When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Yes, you know we're back in our rhythm. <laughs> Except you said male. <laughs> you said male really, really weirdly. That's fine. <laughs> right. I did say email. I said email. <laughs> anyway, E is for email. WDFpodcast.blogspot.uh. Wait, no. What no. Wait, no. Dot blogspot <laughs> is, your, is the blog. I'm so confused. Wait, wait. Do we even answer your emails anymore? Hey, I do, yeah. Yeah. 
Sometimes. Don't look at me like that. That's a very can't even remember your own email. That maybe it's because I keep looking at the blog for my emails. I'm so confused. Okay. Okay. So what's your email? E is for email. WDF podcast at hotmail. Is it dot com? Yeah, it is dot com. What's wrong with me? I can't remember my own email address. Uh, What's the password? Hey, (laughs) what's your bank details? (laughs) So check out those two. uh, Al Gore. So if you're thinking of how to remember that, just think of president. No, 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 vice, vice president. Was he even a vice? I don't know. I think he was just a senator. I don't. Yeah, I think he. No, he was a content. Contender. He was a candidate contender. Could have been a contender. <laughs> Could have been there, man. Could have won it. Could have been somebody. It's okay. Moving on to nothing. Apparently, <laughs> to, to a blank. Yeah. Well, I I really uh, I forgot why. Uh, you know, this is such an enjoyable experience. I I think uh, we 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 do we don't do this often enough. But this is this is very much why we do it, just for the kicks. This is very enjoyable. I hope you're getting as much kicks as we are right yeah, now. Yeah, and I hope that Zach <laughs> trying to edit this can enjoy editing this instead of just being like, oh God, please get to the point. Please. <laughs> I keep forgetting what the point is. I think it's too late in the day for uh, something like this. Uh, you know, let's just keep getting, try to get through fit. Yeah, that's, fit. we can do this. We can do it. The British weren't really interested in the Balkans in a geographical sense. What they were interested in were the issues that were being raised there, in particular the fact that the Ottomans, when they were trying to put down the Bulgarian revolt, ended up slaughtering a load of Bulgarian civilians. When, women and children, up to 30,000, some records say. When, women and children? You just couldn't resist, could you? You (laughs) just couldn't leave it the way it was. When? (laughs) Uh, That's perfect. Okay. Yeah, I can't even remember what context I was saying that sentence. You were in. saying that the British were, um, they they were, they were only interested in the Balkans because of the atrocities of the Ottomans. You just you just have to correct me. I'm I'm. <laughs> when women? No, no, I barely noticed, and I guarantee no one noticed. <laughs> Keep slurping really loudly. <laughs> Very important for scientific purposes that you slurp as loud as you can. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's really loud with those slurps. I know. <laughs> <sighs>